Okay, so we were in um, question, what are we on, 35? And I think we had just talked about, we were talking about all the benefits benefits that uh, flow out of and accompany our adoption, justification, and sanctification. And in this case, we have spoken just about one, which is assurance, right? So we talked about that for all, all week last week, I think so. Uh, and... Now we're going to uh, move on to peace of conscience. That's the next one listed. Uh, Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's my question. If that is one of the benefits of having been adopted by God, justified by Him, and now being sanctified of Him, Isn't it actually more of a sign that you're super spiritual if you're never quite at peace in your conscience? You're always sort of like, oh, I'm grieved about this or that, or I'm a little bit twisted up inside. Ned Flanders was always upset about something he'd done. We had talked a few weeks ago about how the more sanctified you become, the more you tend to see through the light that's now able to shine in uh, more sins. What do we mean when we say someone has peace of conscience? Well, it must be from knowing we're forgiven for those sins, even though we're more aware of them. Okay, so perhaps... When we've been justified and adopted and, and now God is working in us, our conscience has a different role than it had before? What is, what is a conscience? I always think of it as something that lets you know when you're not doing the right thing. Okay. What, what's so funny? It's just like deep psychology. <laughs> you know, let's get into the id, yeah, yeah. ego, and superego for a moment. Exist? What, what is personhood? I was in a different direction. I was thinking of Jimmy Cricket. Hmm. Yeah. What, what's Jiminy say? I don't know. Like, Stop lying, Pinocchio. Pinocchio out, yeah. Oh, right. So, so he's kind of the embodiment of Pinocchio's conscience, in a, in a sense. Um, Go to school. Don't run off at the circus. <laughs> yeah, he sort of uses some low-key Disney swears, though. So I don't know. Um, I, I want to... I mean, this is always dangerous when you take the component parts of a word and say that's what it means. That's called the root fallacy. But sometimes it helps you kind of get to... <coughs> the core of something. Uh, conscience just comes from con, con in, in Spanish. What does that mean? With. Obviously in Latin it's got con. Science. Study. Knowledge. knowledge. With knowledge. So kind of the thing inside you which gives you the knowledge of, uh, innate knowledge of when you've gotten off track. Now when you're an unbeliever, you're you're at enmity with God, your conscience is not firing on all cylinders because you are, according to Romans 1, actively suppressing, distorting, and perverting what you know about God and what you know about your own state. But still, people feel bad everywhere when they do stuff, right? And and I think our conscience also uh, helps you to feel at peace when you've done the right thing. So apart from Christ, outside of Christ, what it does is keep you from ever reaching full peace or satisfaction, right? So even when things are going well, uh, someone who's come to faith might look back and go, yeah, I was still sort of uneasy. There was still something missing. 
I was still I still knew that even though you know outwardly I looked like a really great guy, really quality lady, I inside there was something broken. So that's the conscience's ultimate role for the unbeliever. When you come to faith, now we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Um, I don't know. In fact, even in, in preparing a message for this morning from Acts 21, I was trying to suss out, parse out in my mind, if you can separate the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer from the believer's conscience or not. Uh, people differ on that. But you have now this sense of knowledge um, from Scripture, from God himself within us, from other believers. And yes, it does show us where we fail, but it's no longer uh, with knowledge that we have no peace pushing us toward the cross. It's with knowledge that even when we fall, we do have peace with God. And that's such a, a great thing. I think that too falls back to um, our assurance. If we have assurance of our salvation, then our, our conscience isn't going to vex us to the level of, you know, I, I can't sleep at night because I'm so upset. Like Luther was when he was in his cell in the monastery all night, duking it out with the devil over whether or not he was damned. And he kind of knew that he was because he hadn't really put his faith in Jesus. He'd been putting his faith in his own works. Now that we have Jesus as the object of our faith and we have attained salvation to the point where we have been justified, we've been adopted, we're being sanctified, there's peace in that. Pardon? Oh, <laughs> you guys in the back, troublemakers. i to keep an eye on you. I'm wondering how many spitwads are in the back of Sean's head right now. <laughs> we were told when I picked her up this morning that we were to stay out of trouble. We go down that far. You have failed. <laughs> All right, so Romans 6, Paul talks about the former things of which we are now ashamed, right? Uh, we've, we talked, in fact, that was kind of, uh, I, I talked about that in the message a couple weeks ago, meaning, you know, we say God, God can forgive and we can forgive, but only God can forget. And it's like, no, God is omniscient, so he doesn't forget, but he doesn't call to mind your, your sins that are under the blood. He's not in the business of double jeopardy. Romans 7, all the same, Paul's saying, wretched man that I am. There's, is there a peace of conscience in that passage? What I want to do, I don't do. What I do, the, that I, uh, you know, the good thing I want to do, I don't do. What I do is the thing I don't want to do. Wretched man that I am. Does that sound like someone who's at peace? And if not, if Paul can't have it, why is the catechism suggesting we can have it? Well, I think, the, I think he's not at peace with the sin, which I think is kind of the island of peace there. He's not at peace with the sin, but he's at peace with his Savior, uh, which, you know, which is what he gets to. He's, he's at peace with that he's been purchased and he's been... Uh, you know, you know, completely saved, but he's not okay with what's inside of him. The fact that he's still wrestling with sin. I think that's so he was at war with God and at peace with the iniquity, the indwelling sin, and now he's switched allegiances. He's at peace with God and at war with sin. And remember how that passage ends as well. Does that sound like someone who's at peace? Absolutely. So the true mourning of sin, hating of sin, uh, it leads to peace of conscience, and it's a mark of true peace of conscience. When somebody tells you, uh, oh, no, I'm, I'm okay, don't you worry about me, uh, even if it's a believer who's, who's kind of wandering away from, from following after Jesus, and you say, listen, you're not 
where you should be. And they said, no, no, don't hurry. I, I sleep okay at night. I, I'm fine. Everything's fine. And you say, well, if you really had peace of conscience, you would be mourning this sin, not defending it. You would be trying to destroy it at peace with God rather than trying to protect it at war with God. Uh, and, and peace of conscience, I think this is probably the thing that people notice most when they first come to faith. When I talk to people who come to faith, especially people you know who, who've lived some some life before they've come to faith, uh, they they say a big difference is a weight has been lifted, and that weight was this knowledge, innate knowledge, which is I mean really what conscience is. It's not conscience isn't an angel on your shoulder or some other person living inside you. It's this innate knowledge that you have, and. Just like you know, a body might attack an organ if it's you know, an organ donor's organ isn't quite, it'll, it'll, it'll say something's wrong and attack it. Well, that knowledge inside you will attack when the sin is there. And this is why we don't ever want to say shame should go completely out the window and guilt. Sometimes the spirit uses those things to point you toward your need to repent Granted, sometimes the enemy uses those things to try and make you feel like you're not at peace with God. So we simply have to keep throwing ourselves at the foot of the cross, reading the scripture, and, and reminding ourselves what is the actual situation that we find ourselves in. So we war against all sin, attaining more and more to God's standard, meaning we get more and more peace. The more war is won, the more peace there is. And the next question we'll talk about the ultimate and final uh, V-Day of that war when we will have absolute peace, tranquility forever. Uh, what are the benefits that we receive at death? But we're not there yet. Any other thoughts on peace of conscience? Anyone here have a, a testimony in that regards? Who, you know, they felt the, the peace that comes with giving up that war against God? I was going to say this whole uh, this whole bit in Hebrews twelve about about um, about uh, fathers disciplining sons and the reason you're going through you know, you know Paul's talking about discipline as hardship it's coming from God is that it's affirming that you are a son hmm. you know what kind of what kind of father doesn't discipline their son not a very good one um, so you know that was something really early on that really helped me because there was a level of confusion you know, for me was, okay, well, if I'm saved, then why do I feel like this mm. all the time? Why do I feel this way about this or this way about that? And, you know, there's this assurance that, well, no, the reason you feel that way is that you're being disciplined, you're being chastised, but that's because you have a loving father who's going to do that for you. Yeah. Right, so there's a difference between a household where a kid is in trouble and being uh, raised with good discipline in a household where there's not actually peace. In fact, the lack of discipline would probably lead ultimately to the household where there's, there's no peace. I also like the idea that Paul is constructing his books out of bits, like a comedian. Or maybe you were just speaking a little British. You've been reading Matthew Henry this morning and you were like, which bit? All right. Um, very good, very good. Uh, let's move on to joy in the Holy Ghost. Joy being different from happiness... What's the difference? Again, it's right in the component parts of the word. Hap. What? Happiness. I guess, I guess. 
guess I've always uh, thought of uh, thought of happiness as kind of like a, a temporary, and, and, and it doesn't it doesn't go in. You, can, you can't be happy and sad at the same time. But you can be like joyfully sorrow, or, or, or somewhere in there. Like joy can actually exist while you're sad, but happiness can't. That's that's a very temporary exactly yeah and happiness is based on what's happening right like when sean was a teenager all the kids would say what's the haps that's not true i don't think but on, on tv sometimes you see that what what are you happy would depend on what's happening the happenstance you know people who are very much at enmity with god can be happy if they fall into a bunch of money or make an investment that pays off a ton or they find some really good herb or something i don't know there's a moment of wow i'm very happy that is fleeting it's chasing after the wind and you feel for a moment like you've caught it when the wind is blowing right in your face but you haven't because it's going to stop and then once again you're going to not be happy joy is a permanent thing it undergirds all of who we are it and it flows from you see these things uh, both flow from and uh accompany this one flows from all three, uh, justification, adoption, and sanctification, or jazz for short. Um, justification, we have, somebody flip over to Hebrews 10.19, where Paul does this great bit. Or not Paul, I don't know. Yeah, you, I, 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 I actually am, I am pretty in favor of Pauline authorship of, of Hebrews, and I know all the good arguments against, and I feel like the arguments for outweigh. Ten nineteen. What do we hear? what do we see here? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, keep going. Sorry, <laughs> by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. Just keep going. Now that's good. the The joy in the Holy Ghost flowing from justification has to do with in that passage. Well, yeah, yeah, our our confidence in 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 I mean, I guess is kind of having a mediator, you know, and having and having someone we're able to go through into this holy place that we couldn't go before. Yeah, the the boldness to enter God's very presence, which I mean, we were created to be in God's presence, to enjoy it, and to glorify Him, and now we can do it. That's joy, right? Happiness can be found in any number of self-seeking things that don't glorify God. Joy is what is activated in you when you are actually fulfilling, I almost, I'll say purpose for which you were created. Rick Warren didn't actually trademark the word purpose. Um, That's such a deeper thing. Um, It flows from adoption. Somebody flip back to Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You can't even really describe the doctrine of adoption without just joy, right? That is, 
Is there anything, by the way, more heartwarming than videos of like a foster kid who opens a present and it's like a, a framed picture of them with the family and then they're like told, we're gonna, I'm getting choked up and I don't even think of one particular. We're adopting you and the kid begins, to, I mean, that's, that's like as sheer of joy as you get. That surpasses soldiers coming home to their dogs. And that's what we have in Jesus, that joy in the Holy Ghost because we are adopted. And wow, that's amazing. Uh, and then it uh, flows from sanctification as well. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 2. Sean actually beat me that last one, so I'm going to try and get here before anybody. Hey, I'm there. It says, grace to you. No, 112. I'm going to be like, what? Grace to you? That's, yeah, grace is good. Uh, 112. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly serenity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. So as we're being sanctified, we become channels of God's grace, uh, and we become less hard-hearted, more I mean, forgiving comes easily. I mean, what more peace and joy is there than to be able to actually live in the world, even in the midst of tribulation and trial and, and lies being told about you and still find that joy because you're being sanctified. So in all of these things, joy is at the center. And even when we're unhappy, uh, we can be joyful. We can be content. And I think sometimes that becomes a testing ground for whether we're being sanctified and it can also be for us uh, a good reminder if we begin to doubt our salvation to think, you know, if I was not in Christ, it wouldn't make any sense that when I went through X or Y, I was still able to find joy. Because there was no happiness in that, because what was happening sucked. But who I was in, in God's eyes and what has been done for me still gave me the joy. So what a wonderful benefit that flows out from uh, our justification, adoption, and sanctification, which are the uh, results of our effectual call. Next, this one's going to be maybe controversial, I don't know, for Baptists, but it's a Baptist catechism. An increase of grace. What do you think that means? I thought grace was just pass or fail. Right? <laughs> <laughs> What is grace? What's this? There's a simple, real short definition. Unmerited favor is the best translation, probably, uh, for a theological uh, definition of grace. But it also just means favor uh, sometimes. That, that word charis in the Greek. Um, we read about Jesus himself growing in wisdom and stature and favor. With God and man, that's the same word there. Uh, I think the translators are all just afraid to say that Jesus grows in grace, but he does. Um, Proverbs 4.18, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Uh, the, the beautiful part about the fact that we're not given perfect um, glorification the moment we come to faith, but instead walk slowly toward Jesus is, I, I don't think we could take it, first of all. Uh, it's like when you walk out of a movie theater at noon and you're like, 
uh, you gotta let your eyes adjust. Uh, we, we, we slowly walk toward, or The Matrix, for a nerdier reference. Seriously, how did Neo sit up? He's never used those core muscles before, and his eyes hurt, but wouldn't he be like in agony, because he's never seen light before? We've been in the dark, we've been in bondage, and now we're learning to straighten up and open our eyes and walk toward him. Uh, what does it mean when we read that Jesus increased in favor then with God and man? How can that be if he's God in the flesh? It's easy to grow in favor with man, right? I mean, although Jesus growing in favor with man sharply hit a ceiling there once his ministry began, I think. Then it was divided between those who was very much growing and very much not uh, in favor. What, what, I mean, if you were to thrust yourself back into that covenant world of the Judaism in which Jesus was raised and, and was a faithful adherent, how, how would you think that, because that's the context there, how would you think that growing in favor, growing in grace manifests itself? Well, I mean, it seemed to be that when someone, when someone like truly, uh, truly obeyed and submitted, normally they were, normally they were given by God, and that would that would show your favor. You get like Job, or 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 David. You know, you know, the more that they were the man, and 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 staying with what they were told to do, they were given more and more and more, and that was normally, I think, maybe like a mark for uh, who you were in front of God. Maybe a false mark, though, but I, I think a mark of your favor before God. Do you think this can tie in at all to the fact that Jesus is baptized? Or is that totally unrelated? Hmm? Now you're talking sacramentally, right? No, I'm not. I'm not. Why is Jesus baptized? In the sense that he's being his father's will. Okay. Yes, I don't, I don't know. I mean, just the act of baptism. But He's not repenting of any sins right. at this point, right? But he says so that clearly it pleased God to have him do that, to have him be baptized. So by him following that, I don't think it was a command, but those wishes or that that's what God wanted him to do, that that would increase God's favor? I don't know. As... I don't want to say it's like because of what we do, we start to get more because it's it's not just I'm trying to be good or I'm trying to change my life or I'm, I'm trying to repent and, and do things differently. But, but the whole idea that you're following, obeying, Yeah, and so from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And you'd think, well, can he be any weller pleased? But as the, I mean, as a little tiny baby, yes, God is already pleased with Jesus. As the vessel grows, the capacity grows. As the capacity for grace grows, the being filled with grace grows, right? Just like 
a bigger container can contain more water or something. Uh, and as he's growing in wisdom and stature, he's growing, he's growing in his understanding uh, because of how, how Jesus set aside uh, the, many of the benefits of, of divinity uh, in order to suffer for us as a, a human, that, that is kind of continually increasing his capacity for grace. But when you say sacramentalism, I mean, is it even sacramentalism to suggest that we are increased in grace through taking the Lord's Supper. What if I say that that's a means of grace? Have I thrown in with uh, that guy with the pointy hat and abandoned Baptist principles? Or might that be language that historically Baptists have even used? Well, I guess I've been under the impression that they've even, maybe, maybe historically Baptists would even say that certain, certain pieces or points of sacramentalism would be, you know, uh, probably just in that, in that, in that, Baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then they probably even point out the preaching of Scripture and, and, and the act of good works and so on and so forth increases one's grace. And, but I guess it depends if we're using this modern um, definition of sacramentalism versus older. Now, is it a sneaky like? You might be trying to sneak. I'm not trying to do anything. I'm saying, is it a sneaky thing that you're trying to do? When, when, no, no, to say, um, well, doing these things, even taking the Lord's Supper, might increase our grace, but it's because it increases our capacity uh, for grace. Is that just a sneaky end run around saying, uh, I am saved because I merit it? Or might we want to stop and say, what kind of grace do we mean? You, you are, we, I would argue to the absolute wall that if, when you take the Lord's Supper, it is a means of grace. And by your obedience to Jesus' command to do this in remembrance of him, yes, there is an increase of grace. Not an increase of saving grace. You're not more justified when you leave. Rather, an increase of sanctifying grace. By obedience, we walk down that road with him and become more and more filled with grace. There's an increase of grace as we obey him, as we open his word. Yeah, and yes, uh, preaching, I would, I would even say, is in a sense sacramental, a means of grace. There's only two ordinances of the church, but the, the, our, our confession is very hardcore on that. Uh, by the reading and especially the preaching of God's word, uh, God is saving people and, and his, his grace is going out. Do you think that you feel that increase of grace? Or is it something that people from the outside have to... Are you too close to it? or I think, I think you can feel it. You know, it's like... Um, it's like... Uh, let's just say, you know, your, your children or something. That, that same relationship. They do something that pleases you, and then a week goes by, that, that pleased state doesn't go away. But if they do another thing, you're like, yes, awesome. So God, and then the, you know, the kid feels like, oh, I made my dad happy. Or, and that's how we feel too, I think. And you absolutely don't love your kid more, right? Right. Your love for that kid was perfect to begin with. Your love for the kid is, is perfect when he's like biting your arm in the middle of a tantrum. But yeah, you're, you're yeah. pleased with, yeah, yeah, so favor... Um, we want to be careful that we don't boil 
these terms, which were fairly common terms uh, in the New Testament world, in the religious tradition out of which, uh, you know, grace isn't a major category in, in Second Temple Judaism. There's a word Cain in the Hebrew, but the notion of God's favor is huge, right? Uh, God's favored people, God's, you know, showing his, his uh, election of particular people. And, and so you got to take all that into account and don't boil everything down to this boilerplate definition that it always means uh, unmerited favor that saves me from my sin. Although, I, I mean, even in sanctification, it's God's unmerited favor saving you from your sin. Just the presence of sin in your life, uh, the continued struggle with sin, you're, you're making progress and that you don't deserve it. When God talked about Job, he said, look at Job, you know, what a great guy this is. Job must have done something to get that favor. Mm. So, I don't know whether you would call that marriage. Yeah, the first chapter of uh, Job kind of describes it. Upright and blameless? Yeah, yeah. It, it, and, you know, you see that he's up you know, before the sun offering sacrifices. On behalf of his children who were up yeah. really late partying. partying. You just get this picture of this really blameless guy. I think that's why he's given him So Sean's saying... Is that really unmerited? Seemed merited to me. I mean, I never got up but, early in the morning. For but each of those gifts that he had is is itself grace. Well, I was going to say, what what actually powered him to do it? I think would also be grace, because others around him obviously weren't doing it. So, so I mean, that would be an action of grace that that he feels compelled to even make sacrifices or try to live blamelessly. This guy's probably not even an Israelite; he's an Edomite. Based on all the clues in the in the book, so now we're dealing with somebody who's been given this special light to worship the true God against all odds. That's unmerited favor, and and he responds in faith, which was a gift to him, and he's faithful. I think that's a pretty good example for us. We don't start meriting favor when we increase in grace. We just show that we've received that unmerited favor as we increase in grace. Yeah. How do you know to make sacrifices? If he was, if he was before all of these times, how do you know how to make? Them? I don't know. How did uh, that's just, Noah that's and Abraham? Just, I, just, I, I mean, well, how did Cain know? Right? Don't you think from from the very beginning after the fall, there's a sacrificial system. By the time of Noah, there's this. You got clean and unclean animals, and even though it hadn't been codified. And then it's from that one family comes everybody. So it probably just handed down, I guess, a, a certain level of Yahwistic monotheism, worshiping the, the God who is, that slowly became perverted and turned to polytheism and, and animism and idolatry. But there was still that, that bit just kind of floating out there. Oh, I, I didn't see the bit. This bit that, that Job did where he, was a, uh, where he was faithful to the one true God. That um, was on his second special. First John three nine. What does that say? I bet I can get there quick. No. Hey, I'm there, but somebody else read it. Uh, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Increase of grace is going to look like decrease of sin. Now that sort of is just a 
definition of sanctification, but also is one of the benefits of being justified and adopted. This is the kind of passage, of course, that makes everybody nervous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but when you take it in the context of all of First John, it's not. It's kind of carrot stick, carrot stick, carrot stick. And uh, a reminder that we are, in fact, uh, is if we uh, continue to turn to him and, and confess our sins, uh, we're, we're purged of the guilt and we're made new. Uh, you know, it, it's winter might come and go, but growth is going to resume, right? Winter is coming, you guys. Um, feels like it finally this morning. I'm not mad. I'm not even mad. I, I'm happy about it. But uh, there are people who are going to be crazy depressed in the middle of it. Just remember, because of winter, you get the uh, moment of the first couple little shoots coming up and buds and everything feels new. Um, if we are indeed adopted, justified, and being sanctified, these seasons of struggling with sin uh, are going to be just that, seasons. Uh, and overall, we'll see that increase of grace. Uh, well, we stop growing in stature. We never stop growing in wisdom, one would hope, or in favor, in grace, if we are believers. So we're growing in four directions. This is not mine, but I think it's brilliant. So I'm going to share it with you, even though I don't remember where who, whose it is. Um, and the, the four directions are this, inward, outward, downward and upward. Uh, this might be something you might want to pick up a pen and jot down. Uh, the growth of the believer is inward, outward, downward, and upward. Inward, uh, we want to look to Ephesians 4. Galatians, Ephesians. Oop, I skipped right over it. 10 through 15. Alex, you're the man today with the scriptures. Swords drawn. You're making up for all the sword drills you probably didn't do when you were a, a tyke. All right, let's hear uh, 10 through 15. Ephesians 4. He who was... Uh, oh, man. I, he who has descended is one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves uh, waves and schemes rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ Growing inwardly, growing up into Christ. That's inward growth. It, you can fake outward growth. That's the Pharisee's whole deal. But you can't fake inward growth. If, if you do, it's, you're not really going to believe it yourself. You know, you, you're, you know if you are uh, stuck, stagnant, and you, as a Christian, you won't be satisfied there. You will... You will uh, definitely lose that peace of conscience and, and turn to God uh, for some kind of uh, relief from it. So inward growth is an absolute must for a believer. 
the, the outward changes must be the fruit of the inward growth if they're actually worth anything at all. Otherwise, it's just more filthy rags. Outward growth, though, is also important. I think uh, today there's uh, sort of a dichotomy, a growing uh, kind of middle-class gap between those whose Christianity is just, uh, I show up on Sunday, wave my hands, bounce up and down, and it makes me feel good, and then those who are burying their face in like Richard Baxter and Tertullian. But it's easy to overemphasize my inward growth, spend all my time almost like I'm cloistered as a monk, even though I'm surrounded by people, and, and there isn't as much outward growth. Uh, verse 8, Titus 3.8 says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Uh, Paul says we should be zealous for good works, not just zealous for good doctrine. Good doctrine is important, and uh, private devotional time is important. Being in prayer is vital. But faith without works is dead. And so outward growth, your faith will, uh, you, you won't, you know, be so wrapped up in your own prayer that you see someone suffering and you don't even notice. I got to imagine that's what was going on with the Levite and the, the priest at some level as they walked right by uh, the, the fellow Israelite who'd been, been beaten within an inch of his life. As Isaiah 37 promises, the remnant of God's people will take root and will bear fruit. That remnant is, is us. Uh, and so the roots going down, that's the inward growth. The bearing of the fruit, that's the outward growth. Uh, do some little self-checks on that. And maybe uh, it's, good, it's good to have something like our men's group or Bible. I, I, is there going to be a women's group again at some point? It's, it's always important to have, um, you know, really large churches will make sure they have, if they're healthy, they have small church or small group ministries so people can kind of, We'll sharpen each other, keep each other uh, accountable in, in these areas of growth. Downward and upward, this is where it gets sort of clever. Uh, downward, we mean humility and self-abasement. Uh, Paul calls himself in Ephesians 3.8 the chief of sinners. Um, somebody flip to 2 Corinthians 3. Really giving a Paul a run for his money today, including that sleeper hit Hebrews. With all the bits it contains. Uh, four through five. And then somebody else flip a couple uh, pages up to 2 Corinthians 12. Does someone have 2 Corinthians 3, 4 to 5? Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So this notion of true humility. False humility is one of the outward changes that can be faked. True humility, if it's inward, is going to be this kind of downward trajectory. Uh, and, and it's important. Just like if you are, uh, you know, you're going around a curve and you have to kind of fight the wheel so that you don't go flying off the road. As you become more and more holy, it becomes more and more important to be humble. Otherwise, you start getting puffed up, which is insanely dangerous uh, for a Christian. It, it, that's the way that going... Uh, growing upward can, get, I don't know, we want to go too close to the sun and start mixing metaphors. Uh, what about uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 11? 
I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Whoa. Is that, was that the ESV? No. This is that New American Standard. Oh. I'm always afraid to read from it because it matches anything else. NASB is quality, especially if it's not that uh, 1997 update, which was a huge mistake. That's eh, still good. Um, I'm nobody. Okay. Uh, now, we don't want to be this like kind of down on ourselves, Eeyore Christians. Not only is that annoying, but it makes uh, kind of light of the image of God in us and what Christ has done and is doing for us and in us. But, yeah, Paul recognizing I'm not the significant thing here. If you see anything fruitful from me, it's because God's at work. He gets all the glory. I get the tag chief of sinners. It's downward in the right way. Growing downward, meaning that humility, more and more, the most comfortable posture for us is on our face at the foot of the cross. And when something happens in our lives, rather than kind of rise up and uh, we fall down automatically. That, that's growth uh, for the Christian. Uh, we, we turn to him without even thinking about it. All right, uh, quickly, we've got to read two more for upward. Otherwise, I'm going to feel weird all week. Uh, Philippians 3.20, and then right nearby, Colossians 3, 1 to 2. I'm sure you can guess where we're going with upward, and probably it's only included in the set here to round things out. Is it Philippians 3.20? Yeah. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our citizenship is in heaven. We, that doesn't mean, by the way, that we are not at home here or that we ought to feel lost when we're on earth and uh, we're just a passing through. No, our, our home is here. We were created to be on earth. We're earthlings. Uh, in fact, Adama, that's where Adam gets his name. This is what we do. We live here. We will live on earth forever. But our citizenship, our, our uh, loyalty is ever increasingly upward to God, not to his kingdom, not to uh, this world. Uh, and then anybody got Colossians 3, 1 to 2? It's the next book of the Bible. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. There you go. And there are many passages with a similar theme that we could read. Uh, that's a, a pretty uh, common thread through the New Testament. Keep looking up, like Garth said to Wayne. Uh, think about this during the week if you can't sleep or if you're stuck in traffic. It can be problematic if we measure our growth in only one direction. Inward, outward, downward, upward. Uh, what are some examples of that? We'll pick up with that next time. Uh, and then we will be just about done with that question and move on to number 36. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Something to look forward to, namely death. All right, let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these benefits that flow from and accompany our being justified and adopted and sanctified as if those things weren't enough. There's fringe benefits. Lord, we are overwhelmed by your grace, your unmerited favor that you lavish on us. Lord, we pray that we would never act as though 
life has gotten so hard that we don't deserve it. Let us remember that we don't deserve uh, any of the gifts you give us. They're all unmerited. They're all freely given by you because of who you are, not because of who we are. We praise you and thank you for that. In Jesus' holy and matchless name, amen.